Hi, and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode, we'll be continuing our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 29. Please subscribe and share this uh, podcast. We're coming to the end of Bruce Benn's father, so I'm casting around for a new book to serialise. Um, as always... Sign up for the uh, 1914-1918.substack.com newsletter where you get uh, other articles that I write and uh, other stuff over time. Anyway, let's get on with the show, chapter 29. Everything you hold worthwhile is a Chapter 29 Getting Nearer A Lugubrious Party Still Nearer Blazing Eep Orders for Attack After about another twenty minutes march, we halted again. Something or other was going on up the road in front, which prevented our moving. We stood about in the lane and watched the shells bursting in the town. We were able to watch shells bursting closer before we had been there long. With a screeching whistle, a shell shot over our heads and exploded in the field on our left. This was the signal, apparently, for shrapnel to start bursting promiscuously about the fields in all directions, which it did. Altogether the lane was an unwholesome spot to stand about in. We were there some time, wondering when one of the bursts of shrapnel would strike the lane, but none did. Straggling, small groups of Belgian civilians were now passing down the lane, driven out, no doubt, from some cottage or other, that until now they had managed to persist a living in. Mournful little groups would pass, wheeling their total worldly possessions on a barrow. Suddenly we were moved on again, and as suddenly halted a few yards further on. Without a doubt, strenuous operations and complications were taking place ahead. A few of the officers collected together by a gate at the side of the lane and had a smoke and a chat. I wonder how much longer we're going to stick about here, someone said. What about going into that house over there and seeing if there's a fire? He indicated a tumble-down cottage of a fair size, which stood nearly opposite us, on the far side of the lane. It was almost dark by now, and the wind made it pretty cold work, standing and sitting about in the lane. Four of us crossed the roadway and entered the yard of the cottage. We knocked at the door and asked if we might come in and sit by the fire for a bit. We asked in French and found that it was a useless extravagance on our part, as they only spoke Flemish. What a terrible language that is. These were Flemish people, the real goods. We hadn't struck any before. They seemed to understand the signs we made. At all events, they let us into the place. There was a dairy alongside the house belonging to them, and in here our men were streaming, one after another, paying a few coppers for a drink of milk. The woman, serving it out with a ladle into their mess tins, was keeping up a flow of comment all the time in Flemish. Nobody except herself understood a word of what she was saying. Hardy people, those dwellers in that cottage. 
shrapnel was dropping about here and there in the fields nearby, and at any moment might come into the roof of their cottage or through the flimsy walls. We four went inside and into their main room, the kitchen. It was in the same old style which we knew so well, a large, square, dark and dingy room, with one of their popular long stoves sticking out from one wall. Round this stove, drawn up in a wide crescent formation, was a row of chairs with high backs. On each chair sat a man or a woman, dressed in either black or very dark clothes. Nobody spoke, but all were staring into the stove. I wished momentarily that I'd stayed in the lane. It was like breaking in on some weird sect, stove worshippers. One wouldn't have been surprised if suddenly one member of the party had removed the lid of the stove and thrown in a grey powder or something of the sort. This to be followed by flames leaping high into the air whilst low-toned monotonous chanting would break out from the assembly. Feast in honour of their god Shrapnel, who was angry. I suppose I shouldn't make fun of these people, though. It was enough to make them silent and lugubrious, to have all their country and their homes destroyed. We sat around the stove with them and offered them cigarettes. We talked to each other in English. They sat silently listening and understanding nothing. I am sure they looked upon all armies and soldiers, irrespective of nationality, as a confounded nuisance. I'm sure they wished we'd go and fight the matter out somewhere else, and no wonder. We sat in there for a short time, and stepped out into the road again just in time to hear the order to advance. We hadn't far to go now. It was quite dark as we turned into a very large flat field at the back of Ypres, right close up against the outskirts of the town. Just the field, I felt sure, that a circus would choose if visiting that neighbourhood. The battalion spread itself out over the field and came to the conclusion that this was where it would have to stay for the night. It was all very cold and dark now. We sat about on the great field in our greatcoats and waited for the field kitchens and rations to arrive. As we sat there, just at the back of Ypres, we could hear and see the shells bursting in the city in the darkness. The shelling was getting worse. Fires were breaking out in the deserted town and bright yellow flames shot out here and there against the blackened sky. On the arrival of the field kitchens, we all managed to get some tea in our mess tins, and the rum ration being issued, we were a little more fortified against the cold. We sat for the most part in great coats and silence, watching the shelling of Ypres. Suddenly a huge fire broke out in the centre of the town. The sky was a whirling and yellow glare of flames, and now it started to rain. Down it came, hard and fast. We huddled together on the cold field and prepared ourselves to expect anything that might come along now. Shells and rain were both falling in the field. I think a few shells, meant for Ypres, had rather overshot the mark and had come into our field in consequence. I leant up as one of a tripod of three of us, my face towards the burning city. The two others were my old pal, the platoon commander at Saint-Event, and a subaltern of one of the other companies. I sat and watched the flames licking around the cloth hall. I remember asking a couple of men in front to shift a bit so I could get a better view. It poured with rain, and we went sitting on in that horrible field, wondering what the next move was to be. At about eleven o'clock, an orderly came into the field with a Macintosh ground sheet over his head, 
and told me the colonel wished to see me. Where is he? I asked. In that little cottage place at the far corner of the field, near the road, sir. I rose up and thus spoilt our human tripod. Where are you going, B.B.? asked my St. Evon friend. Colonel sent for me, I replied. Well, come back as soon as you can. I left and never saw him again. He was killed early the next morning, one of the best chaps I ever knew. I went down the field to the cottage at the corner, and entering found all the company commanders, the second in command, the adjutant and the colonel. We shall attack at 4am tomorrow, he was saying. This was the moment at which I got my fragment idea. The push by one who's been pushed. We shall attack at dawn. The colonel went on to explain the plans. We stood around in the semi-darkness, the only light being a small candle whose flame was being blown about by the draught from the broken window. We shall move off from here at midnight or soon after, he concluded, and go up the road to Saint-Julien. We all dispersed to our various commands. I went and got my sergeant and section commanders together. I explained the coming operations to them. Sitting out in a field in the rain, the map on my knees being occasionally brightly illuminated by the burning city, I looked out the road to Saint-Julien. That brings us to the end of chapter 29 as Bruce Ben's father gets closer to the action. <laughs>